Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. What's up, Boards Insiders? I am Patrick Beeman, the founder of ITB and our chief question officer, which is a title I just totally made up and to me sounds kind of cool. This is part two of our series with Dr. Chris Semino, the Vice President of Kaplan Medical, friend of ITB, and Kaplan's Chief Medical Officer, and our own Chase DeMarco, who hosts the Medical Nemesis podcast, which is focused on accelerated learning techniques, memory hacks, and tools to help you retain the things that you learn during your study. So let's get into it, but first... Our question of the day from Kaplan's Step 2 CK Integrated Plan. ITB listeners can get 15% off any Kaplan course. And if you're an AMA member, you can tack on your 30% AMA discount for a total of 41% off. Go to captest.com, sign up for the Integrated Step 2 CK Plan or any other Kaplan course and use ITB15 at checkout. All right, here is our question for today. A 26-year-old woman comes to the physician because of a one-year history of amenorrhea. She has had occasional discharge from both breasts. She takes no medications. She has a 5-year-old child that she breastfed until age 9 months. There is diffuse enlargement of the thyroid gland on physical examination, and her breasts show expression of milk bilaterally. An MRI of the brain shows pituitary enlargement. Laboratory studies reveal an elevated serum prolactin, an elevated thyroid-stimulating hormone, and a decreased serum thyroxin level. A urinary beta-HCG is negative. All right, so our interrogatory is which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, bromocryptine, choice B, cabergoline, choice C, radiotherapy, or choice D, thyroxin replacement? And the correct answer here is choice D, thyroxin replacement. All right, so this patient has hyperprolactinemia. She also has amenorrhea, galactorrhea, and hypothyroidism. Her MRI shows pituitary enlargement. So the correct diagnosis here, all things considered, is primary hypothyroidism, which is one of the functional causes of hyperprolactinemia. Hyperprolactinemia occurs in approximately 25% of patients with primary hypothyroidism. There will be thyrotrope cell hypertrophy and hyperplasia and an increased level of thyrotropin-releasing hormone, TRH, because of the lack of negative feedback by thyroid hormones. TRH causes a diffuse pituitary enlargement with increased synthesis and secretion of prolactin. Thyroid hormone replacement will restore normal prolactin levels and will cause regression of the pituitary enlargement. And just a brief word about the distractors, bromocryptine and cabergoline are both dopamine agonists used for the treatment of prolactinomas. These medications may control the hyperprolactinemia in a patient like this, but they would not fix the primary problem, which is the hypothyroidism. Finally, radiation therapy. This would be a second-line treatment for hyperprolactinemia, along with something such as transphenoidal surgery, but it is not a treatment for hypothyroidism. So here are the recaps. 
Get it? Recap. R-E-K-A-P-S. Recap. All right. Uh, Number one, primary hypothyroidism can present with hyperprolactinemia. Two, increased TRH stimulates the pituitary gland, causing prolactin secretion. Three, primary hypothyroidism plus secondary hyperprolactinemia. Treatment, thyroid replacement, and it will correct both. All right, and now back to the show. When taking something like the subject exam or the comprehensive exam, there is also a lot of confusion about outdated materials as far as when material gets quote-unquote retired or if it's from an MBME, is it a retired question from the USMLE? How do some of these questions get cycled through in what order and how can we best prepare for these changes? That's a great question, and it kind of also picks up where I left off in terms of how does the question get on the test, how does it get off the test. So that committee gets through their 300 questions. They they actually, it's a, usually a two-day thing, and, and some of the stuff they're going to be working that night in the hotel to, to update the questions and re-review them, and then they get submitted. And they go through another review by the step one committee. And then they get put in as experimental items. And that's done so that the NBME can see what happens with these questions when real students answer them on the real test. And they may find, you know what, there are all these great questions on, let's say, patient safety, and the vast majority of students get them wrong. Well, that's because this one committee must have thought patient safety was important and they have to all, they happen to all agree, but apparently they don't, uh, they're not in agreement with the majority of faculty who are teaching students. Uh, so students aren't learning this. So therefore, yes, we said it's on the test, but at least these particular questions aren't asking it in the way that most students are learning. So therefore, we're not going to use those questions for step one. So those would be pulled out of it. Other questions in the experimental pool would, would get a good rating and they'd say, Oh, these worked out well. And, and what I mean by that is they say all of the strong students, as recognized by their score, their final score, got these questions right. And the weak students, most of them got them wrong. So this question is good at separating out the strong students from the weak students. And so that's why that question will get added. Over time, that question will become dated. And schools aren't teaching it that way anymore, or um, the topic is not relevant anymore. Frankly, most of the immunology I learned in medical school, about five years after I graduated, there were so many changes in uh, both genetic understanding and immunologic tests and use of antibodies to create new tests that most of the information I learned was useless, and most of the information students were learning was stuff I wasn't familiar with. So a question like that, would start showing up on the analysis the same way. Suddenly, more students would be getting it wrong. It's not that the question became harder. It's that the question became irrelevant. And so they'll pull it out. So now, what happens to those questions? Some of them, probably some of the ones that are pulled out fairly recently, I'm guessing end up on the comprehensive basic science uh, self-assessment exams. And they're still going to study them. They're not going to put a bad question there. But they're going to pull out a question that they thought, for whatever reason, isn't quite up to snuff. But it's still good enough for the basic science. And that's why the forms, the basic science has different, exam has different forms. That's why they keep creating new forms. Um, and the older the form, the more likely it is to be less relevant. 
The other way questions get pulled out and put on those exams or the subject exams or whatever is that the style guide changes. So, for example, um, and this is an interesting example that compares to the complex exam, the osteopathic exam, how long should the case be that leads into a question? And so one philosophy is, well, you should give them a full realistic case as if they're in the hospital so that they help it helps them understand what the basic science relevance is of this drug-drug interaction or this physiologic function. Or you could say, no, you just give them enough of the case that's relevant to the question that's being asked. So two very different approaches, and there's a justification for either, but one results in a really long question and the other results in a really short question. And so then you have to ask the question, are we testing reading speed or are we testing medical knowledge? So NBME has been in a pendulum swing where initially there were no cases. We're talking about 30, 40 years ago. Um, then there were cases and they started getting longer and longer. And now we're in a phase where I think the cases are getting shorter and shorter, at least based on what, what I hear from, from students. Comlex is at a different point in that pendulum swing. They're still at the point where their cases are getting longer and longer. That's what we're hearing from the osteopathic students. So if the style guide changes, then that's another reason perfectly good questions would get pulled out. There's nothing wrong with the question. The topic's still relevant, and it's still a good question. It just doesn't fit the style of what they want on the real exam. Hmm. I noticed that the questions for, for instance, the MBME uh, basic science comprehensive seem to be a lot longer in the each question's paragraph, the number of sentences and words, compared to the last time I took the clinical sciences comprehensive exam. And I don't know if that has to do with a timing difference, if that much has shifted between, or if that is relevant to the two different types of tests. Do you think that's related to actual shifts in the test writer's guide or just sort of a timing issue or mixture? Yeah, I and keep in mind, um, some of this is just guesses, but they're educated guesses. If I had to run their org. And I was pulling questions out that cost me a lot of money to to get written because I'm flying faculty in and they're you know putting them up in a hotel and feeding them and and then putting them through this extensive process which requires lots of employees doing psychometric analysis. Then I'm going to be very hesitant to say, oh, no good anymore. Let's throw it out. I'm going to instead say, well, it's no good for this purpose. What else do we use it for? So I'm making guesses, but I that my guesses agrees with what you just said. That's why you're seeing changes in those ancillary tests that they're offering. Okay. I suppose that would make sense to recycle as much of the material as you can if you're going through that much expense for it. Right. That mm -hmm. also brings up a good segue into another topic that I know I mentioned to you before is sort of how to know which topics and tests are important, such as the example I used was oligoclonal bands for MS mm -hmm. when we don't really use that for treatment, but it's still a commonly tested topic in step one, at least in board review materials. So mm -hmm. how is that useful or what is the disconnect between that and clinical medicine or, or where should students focus their attention? Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, uh, us commenting on this. And, and remind me to come back to also the issue of new, this is the issue of old material, but there's also the issue of new material. So old material, there's a catch. Uh, and, and the other place this comes up a lot is drugs, because the, the pharmacology is probably the most rapidly changing area of medical knowledge, because uh, new drugs come out all the time, and 
replace existing drugs. But on step one, there's another factor that comes into play, not just what's being practiced clinically, but what are the relevant basic science concepts. So for example, oligoclonal bands as a test, an immunologic test, mean, there's a lot of info in that phrase in terms of what does that mean in the lab when you're doing that laboratory test. And while clinically, it's not very relevant to the way multiple sclerosis is diagnosed in the world today, the concept of what an oligoclonal band test shows you is relevant to the understanding of the science of immunology. And so if they say, you know what, this is an important principle, and this example from 10, 15, 20 years ago is still the best example of this that used to be clinically relevant, then we ought to ask a question about this. So again, it's it's trying to keep in mind that the focus of step one, while it is related to the practice of medicine, it's also related to the foundational basic science. Some other examples of this are mechanism of drug actions. So you there are certain drugs that are almost never used, but they have a unique mechanism of action. And it's important, and, and the pharmacologist may tell you, yeah, nobody uses this, but this is really interesting the way it works. And we expect other drugs are being developed that will use this same mechanism and will be important in the future. So that's a reason why they might teach something that doesn't seem relevant to clinical medicine. Now, what I would say, if I was the NBME, is that in those questions, I would frame the question in a way that makes that distinction clear. So there will be some questions you'll see that are about, you know, studies in lab rats. Drug was tested on rats and blah, blah, blah. And so that, that brings back, okay, this is not what you'd see in the hospital, but this is still relevant as a research. Not to tip off that it's that kind of question. Whether the, the last thing I'll say though is though in the study materials that outside reviewers, Kaplan and others are making, the same concept still comes across in the old material where it was clinically relevant. So you can always make the argument that you're still teaching the basic concept that would help you answer the lab rat question, even though the study material is focused on something that's not relevant to people anymore. I'm glad you brought up the pharmacology aspect because that was always my most frustrating topic in basic sciences because you're taught it in a way that's very different than the way you just explained it. You're not necessarily focusing on the exam on a drug you're never going to use clinically, but on the mechanism. But when you're taught in class, it's basically learn all of these drugs, learn all of the mechanisms for all of them, learn everything about everything and just do it. So I guess those types of topics are very frustrating for students since there is that disconnect between how we're learning it and why we're learning it as opposed to just rote memorization. Yeah, and, and the problem there is uh, the disconnect between who's teaching and who's using the information. Um, so most med students have had this experience where you've got some PhD who this is his research, and, and there'll always be that one lecture that's like, okay, this is his research, because he's going into great detail about the stuff that I, you know, happens to be what's going on in his or, his or her lab, and that stuff is not likely to be on the MDMA. But it also applies to other stuff that is on the MDME. And the problem there is the researchers know why it's relevant from a research perspective, 
but they don't have as good a grasp on how to show the clinical relevance. They, they know theoretically that it's clinically relevant, but they can't speak to actual patients. So one thing medical schools are doing more and more is finding ways to bring the researchers and the clinicians together to improve what's being lectured and what's being tested in, in the school. So I was involved in a couple of things where me and a researcher would pair together and talk about, so as an example, I teach, I still teach at Einstein, was uh, another school I've been involved with for many years. And uh, we teach a thing on Wernicke's encephalopathy, and I give the clinical piece, but I've worked closely with the biochemists to talk about the electron transport chain, which is, you know, basically where we're talking about how B vitamins affect uh, the electron transport chain. And that's where it becomes relevant to Wernicke's encephalopathy. So they're not going to get a question in first year biochemistry on specifically Wernicke's encephalopathy, but it sure helps them understand why it's important to learn to hear that clinical piece in side by side with how the mitochondria functions and so forth. That definitely helps to distinguish some of the the different aspects of how it's taught and how we're tested. And I think that helps to clarify, at least for myself and hopefully for the audience as well, why some of these topics are so frustrating to learn because you're not learning them in necessarily the proper context. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I know you wanted to talk about new materials as well, not just old material being retired, um, such as I know at least in the past year or so, there's been a lot of, I don't want to say conflicting evidence, but different views on topics like contrast-induced nephropathy and whether it actually exists or not. How are topics like that maybe controlled or added or or discussed in a sense of test writing questions? Yeah. So so I'll, I'll talk about sort of a couple different classes of new material, some of which is easier to hypothesize about than others. So one good example is DSM-5 gets released. This was a couple of years ago. But everyone knows that they're working on the next version of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Psychiatry, and they know what the release date is likely to be, but no one knows what's in it. So suddenly it's available, and we start getting students asking, what do I have to know about DSM-5? And the answer back then was, well, nothing, because it's not on the test yet. They didn't get it any earlier than we did. And so... Every, all those faculty who are writing questions, sure, NBME is going to say, oh, we got to start writing DSM-5 questions, or we got to edit the ones we have to see if they're still relevant to DSM-5. And that's a process. And so the process of recruiting people, writing the questions, getting them vetted, putting them through the experimental phase, and then finally saying the questions are good enough. We estimate when something new like that comes out, it probably takes anywhere from a year and a half to two and a half years before it actually shows up on the test. So that's like a clear-cut example, but people are aware of this kind of thing all the time when suddenly Ebola is important because it hits the news, or suddenly spinal muscular atrophy is is starting to become more important because it's there's increasing number of cases in pediatrics across the country. So those things then excite interest among students, but frankly, they're not going to be on the test or emphasized on the test for a couple of years, probably. Then there's stuff where the NBME makes announcements. And that's trickier because uh, on Veterans Day last year, I think it was, they announced they were going to start to do more content on military medicine. Well, 
they made the announcement. So they, for all we know, they could have been working on those questions for the last two years, and now they're ready to release them into the pool. The reality is a lot of military medicine is simply regular medicine, but in a military context. So the principles are the same. The, the focus is the same. It's really more about changing the cases in, in the questions. There's exceptions to that approach. But again, that's sort of the message we would give students. Yes, you need to be aware of what that means, but you probably will have already been taught stuff, uh, you know, like nerve gas. And, you know, it's like, well, what is nerve gas? Well, guess what? It's a cholinesterase inhibitor. Um, and it, so you learned about that. Um, and so you need to, you need to just rethink the, the approach. The third is probably the most problematic, and that comes up with things like guidelines or the example you mentioned, contrast enhancement. And it's important to remember that the mission of NBME is to write questions for state licensure, which means it is qualifying doctors for the general practice of medicine and that their knowledge will fit in with what is the general standard across all doctors. So when there is a disagreement among doctors, that suddenly means there is no standard across the country for that. Now, there might be questions that are still in the exam that haven't been polled by the release of this new information. But what's going to happen is students across the country are going to start having trouble with that, those questions. And that's going to show up in the statistical analysis and those questions will get polled. So there's a brief period where you got to kind of worry about that. But for the most part, they're probably on top of that and pulling some of that stuff proactively. Guidelines is another problem that's kind of thorny, but there's actually a simple approach to, to worrying about it. And the, the classic is, when do you do cancer screening? At what age? And so the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology may say that pap smears should start at a certain age and breast exams at another age. And the public health service may come out with a guideline that's almost the same, but has a different age. So let's say, you know, or colon screening is another good example. That's changed recently. And one age might be starting at age 45, and the other might say starting at age 55. Uh, so when do you start doing colonoscopies? Well, I don't know the answer, but neither does anybody else because there's conflicting evidence. The real concern for students is how, how will that show up on the test? And so my belief is the way it'll show up on the test is they will avoid it. If they're going to make a question like that, where knowing the age of screening is important, they'll stay away from the gray zone. So the patient will either be younger than 45 or older than 55, so that both guidelines remain correct. If you think how would they deal with that problem, that seems to be the most logical approach they would use. That segued perfectly and already answered the other question I was going to ask <laughs> regarding, yeah, the difference in medical societies and guidelines and do we use the USPSTF recommendations like some say? Do we use the medical society recommendations like others say? And a lot of it is still recommendations at this point. As much as students think that it's mostly evidence-based medicine, we only have evidence to a certain degree and for certain topics. And the rest has to be based currently on recommendations. So it can be very confusing and frustrating for a student to know how to approach those types of conflicting topics. Yep, absolutely. Since we also touched on sort of newsworthy topics, there's one other thing that students worry about unnecessarily. So one, one example is 
ethics issues that come up in the news. Uh, you know, you have some patient on life support and the, fa- the father and mother want the life support removed and the grandparents don't and there's hospital institutes tube feeding and, and there's a whole huge legal battle that gets into the news and everybody weighs in. And students then get concerned, not just students, but faculty start teaching this and it becomes the focus of a, an ethics thing within the, the curriculum. And so how will that appear on the test? And a lot of those issues end up touching on not just ethical issues, but legal issues. And as soon as it touches on legal issues, there's the recognition that the laws in states are different. So even things like the definition of brain death can vary from state to state. The way that healthcare proxy is implemented, all of those things are state-specific laws. And NBME is writing an exam that is applicable to all states, and therefore it cannot reference any specific state law. So all of that stuff, which is very confusing, is not going to be on the test because it's different from state to state. That's good to know. I know a lot of material, especially in in certain more conservative or more liberal states, is vastly different than, let's say, the state average throughout the U.S. So knowing that there's sort of one correct answer for those or that it'll not be asked is a, a good thing not to worry about. And I think that also brings up a great point for the next topic that we're going to discuss. And that has to do with learning certain materials from different disciplines for the step one anyway. All right, everyone, that is it for today. Join us next time on the Inside the Boards podcast for even more high-yield learning.